0: Shalom and greetings. I'm John McKee, editor of Messianic Apologetics. And along with my co-host, Judah Hamango, we would like to welcome you to this episode of the Messianic Walk.
1: Yeah, welcome everybody. I'm Judah. I run uh, Kine T. Litzion, a Messianic blog, and Chava Messianic Radio as well.
0: Today, we are discussing messianic jewish problems with hebrew roots it's going to be a spicy one <laughs> right so we recommend that you have a uh, nice jar of jalapenos uh, <laughs> perhaps a nice adult beverage with you uh, my preferred beverage of choice tends to be johnny walker red uh, straight up of course <laughs> Uh, but we're going to be addressing this episode and perhaps in some further episodes, a number of theological and missional uh, areas of the Messianic Jewish movement, Hebrew roots, people who just call themselves Messianic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, uh, Messianic Judaism as a first generation movement is principally on the scene to see Jewish people presented with the good news of Israel's Messiah and not assimilated into Christianity. While many non-Jewish believers have been led by the Lord into the Messianic movement, the independent Hebrew roots movement is something that is broadly separate from Messianic Judaism. Mm -hmm. What are some of the main problems that today's Messianic Judaism has with Hebrew roots? Now, Just to give you some brief background behind some of the things we're going to be talking about, Uh, in October uh, on my podcast, Messianic Insider, I was able to interview my local Messianic congregational leader, Rabbi David Schiller. Uh, He is a rabbi in the MJAA. He also sits on the board of Chosen People Ministries, definitely a veteran of the modern Messianic Jewish movement, been in the movement for three to four decades. Uh, And he would be easily recognized as someone who believes in an inclusive Messianic movement. He believes uh, in the unity of Jew and Gentile, one new man. Uh, I can personally say that he doesn't make any effort to see people unnecessarily removed from a congregation, or made to feel unwelcome. Mm. But in the course of interviewing him on, can Messianic Jews and Hebrew roots talk to each other? And while he said, look, Hebrew roots has got a lot of really good things going for it. Their seriousness to the scriptures generally exceeds the serious of many Messianic Jewish believers to mm. matters mm. of Torah. Uh, yeah. So he had a lot of good things to say about Hebrew roots people. Uh, but still... Uh, there were some things that he pointed out, uh, and I would agree with as well, which can be points of tension. And frequently, but not always, in today's Messianic community, you hear, we don't talk about this, don't bring that up, this is what we believe. Uh, And there's not often enough explanation regarding why, Either uh, either an explanation from the Holy Scriptures or... Here are some of the bad experiences that we have had. Uh, So these are a number of things we're going to be talking about uh, on this episode of the Messianic Walk. And hopefully, as we examine these different matters of Messianic Judaism, Hebrew roots, its mission, purpose, whatever, we can facilitate better understanding and we can all have a much better idea about what God has been doing.
1: Yeah, and I think, John, a lot of people watching this podcast, many or, or at least some will, will believe some of the things that we're going to address, some of these points that are issues of contention um, that the Messianic Judaism uh, Judaism movement has with the Hebrew Roots movement. Um, when I'm going to be discussing these issues, my main focus isn't necessarily to dissuade um I think we can have difference of opinions on a lot of these things. A lot of my recommendations out of this are going to come down to grace, that when you are with other people in a congregational setting, you have grace for other people. Um, It kind of goes along with when we were talking about Romans on a previous podcast, Paul harps on this in his letters a lot where, look, you don't cause other people to stumble. You know, when, when you are with other people, there is an additional responsibility on you. It's not just what I believe and I have to push my beliefs, but when you're with other people, you have grace for other people. And so a lot of uh, the discussion today, I'm not even going to try to dissuade people from this or that. I'm just going to say, look, we, we need to have more grace when, when, we are in a congregational setting. We need to be better guests <laughs> when we are with uh, different brothers. Um, and if we are good guests and we have that grace and we have good fruit from that, then I think in you you could attend a Messianic Judaism congregation, Hebrew roots. You can attend churches. Um, if you have that grace, it goes, it really goes a long way. And I think that is a thrust of the scripture that sometimes gets lost when we talk about our personal opinions on contentious matters. Um, So I, I want grace to really be at the fore.
0: I completely agree with that. And before we get into some of these, you know, specific matters, you know, one of the things that I know does happen, you know, you've got various levels of, you know, Messianic uh, Jewish congregations, what they're Mm -hmm. out there for, what their purposes are, variety are geographically, uh, especially here in North America, and then you got various levels of people who identify more on the Hebrew root side. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what do you think about these, you know, different components of let's call it Torah observance? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. How many people are very new and they're just going through some kind of a phase that has to naturally play out, where mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, fall on their face a few times, they get a little too rigid or legalistic, mm-hmm. and then how many people? from that Hebrew root side, they go to a Messianic Jewish congregation and they just don't understand the development of the modern Messianic Jewish movement and what some of the early Messianic Jewish leaders were trying to set up. Mm -hmm. And so if they come in there and they, they are apparently reading one thing in the Bible and they see some kind of mainstream Jewish tradition or custom being observed and they're like, well, that's not biblical. And they come in guns blazing Rather Mm -hmm. than like, you know, I need to ask the leadership about this and I need to see where they're coming from. And I need to be a little humble and understand a little more about the Jewish experience in history and the Messianic Jewish experience Then perhaps some of the issues that we've seen be very divisive over the past two decades. You know, maybe they wouldn't have been as damaging as, as they have been. Uh, because I know that, you know, I've seen, at least in my view, in my opinion, a lot of unnecessary things which could have been prevented. And and I know yeah, some of it, agree there. some of it has to just some of it does have to do with Different personalities, dominant personalities people thinking that I'm a prophet or I'm an apostle or I'm this or I'm mm. that God's mm-hmm. given me this lockbox watertight fireproof calling whatever it is <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. more often than not it's you know people grasping onto some kind of a new apparent truth and they haven't gone through a lot of troubleshooting and how do I communicate these things better and how do I Uh, Mm. understand where other people Mm. are coming from in order to better facilitate the interests of the good news
1: yep yep that's right humility goes a really long way here and like you said i think we could avoid a lot of the uh, contention uh, over these differences if we had some humility and grace so yeah we'll get into that as we discuss uh, each of these contentious issues
0: all right, so we're going to start out with a question that I suspect many of you uh, who are watching or listening to this have never been asked or heard asked before. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your messianic experience, how much of it? Me, how much has it been stressed that messianic Judaism is still a first generation movement dealing with first generation issues?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you you hit this one on the outset. You've mentioned it in previous podcasts too, John. I know the Messianic movement well, and intellectually I know that it's still a first generation movement, but it's never really sunk in that we're still dealing with those first generation issues. And specifically your question, how much has it been stressed? Never. You know, you just said many of you haven't even considered this, many of you listening. Uh, It's the same with me, like it's never discussed or stressed that, yeah, you know what, the messianic movement, the modern messianic movement is young. We still are in that first generation. Many of the early leaders of that time, you know, if you go back uh, early 70s, many of them are still in leadership in some way in in today's messianic movement. Um, I'm thinking of people like the Chernoffs and and Stuart Dowerman and others. Uh, so yeah, this is an issue that, um, isn't stressed, uh, but the reality is we are uh, still facing a lot of these first generation issues. Um, I was thinking about this, John, and, and some of the, those first generation issues, some of those things, uh, we'll tackle today, but I was just, as I was kind of thinking about this, some, some more came to mind, you know, we have, uh, the questions of identity, you know, who are we? Um, and I think the Messianic Jewish movement of the 70s, kind of breaking away from the Hebrew Christian movement of, of previous decades, um, was really grappling with this issue. You know, are we Hebrew Christians or are we Messianic Jews? And what what is the difference there? Um, so there's still those questions of identity. You mentioned, John, that uh, before the podcast started that, you know, some people are still calling our congregations churches, and, oh, you, you know, you're, you're, you're Christians. Well, that, that's true, you're, you're a follower of Christ, but there's a difference there. Um, questions about how we should live our lives, you know, with regards to Torah observance and with regards to Jewish tradition. Um, these are still issues being wrestled with in congregations today. Um, even in and even if we answer in Torah positive and say yes, you know we we believe the Torah is good and should be applied in, in, in some respect. Then there's further questions. You know, should our Torah observance re- resemble um, Orthodox Judaism's stringencies or, or or more Reform Judaism's relaxations? Um, and even tradition itself. You know, sh- how should we approach Jewish traditions? Is it binding? Same with Christian traditions. In the messianic movement. Um, evangelism, so many questions still, and I think many of these are kind of first generation questions that haven't really been settled yet. Um, and so we do see a lot of diversity of opinion on these things. Um, and that's why, as I mentioned earlier, grace and humility goes a long ways um, when we are in this congregational setting.
0: I, I completely agree with you there. And I know that when our family entered into the Messianic Jewish movement back in 1995, Mm -hmm. there were a a variety of unique circumstances leading to our finally getting plugged in, um, my father's death, my mother getting remarried, not wanting to be part of a Bible church or a more of a Wesleyan Arminian church, the very brief stint they spent in the charismatic movement And then going on a tour to Israel and my parents being told by the Lord, I want you to keep the feasts. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that got us plugged into the Messianic movement, you know, very early on. And, you know, looking back on that time and, you know, having not really felt entirely welcome and wondering, you know, what's the big deal here? You know, uh, I feel second class, you know, I feel Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I'm not really being treated as an equal it would have been very helpful if someone in the messianic Jewish leadership had said, hey, we're a first generation movement and we have a lot of things working. we're still working through because yep. if they had said that it would have been like, oh, okay, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um but of course people in congregational leadership they have to act as though they have everything together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know,
0: they have to act and they have to act like they mm-hmm. not that they know everything, but they have to you know, give the impression that they are—can I say this—a lot more stable than they might appear to be. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, a more coherent um, worldview. Yeah, yeah, sure, and, and okay. yet,
0: and yet, still, you know, you're able to pick up a lot of things subconsciously, and maybe even not so subconsciously. You know, hmm. we were at a messy in a congregation where. You know the parents of the congregational leader were Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know from Poland. So, so, so what kind of what does that do to someone's psychology? You know, yeah. growing up. Yeah. Uh, first of all, growing up as being first generation American. You know mm-hmm. we, and mm-hmm. then you know, coming to faith in Jesus, growing up in a liberal American, you know, hippie kind of Jewish environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that so. Mm-hmm. So right there, you've got issues that, you know, the congregational leader is probably still dealing with. Yes. And then this whole thing about, well, you know, Messian Judaism is here to declare the good news to the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that? How do we do that effectually? And this unforeseen side effect, which is that you have all of these non-Jews who are streaming into our congregations. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so if it had been stressed that well we are a first generation movement and yeah. we're still trying to figure out what it means to be Jewish and believe in Yeshua and still be regarded as Jewish not only by the larger Jewish community but even ourselves yeah then perhaps uh, a number of the problems that we definitely saw in the in the in the at the end of the 1990s and in the 2000 aughts could Mm. have been avoided because some of the people pushing particular agendas could have said, look, look at how far Messianic Judaism has come in just two to two and a half decades. Mm. Maybe we need to be a little more patient as we go through some of these different matters like non-Jews coming in and Jewish non-Jewish equality and Torah and what have you. And unfortunately, that's not what happened. You didn't get a lot of people who were patient. You didn't get a lot of people who are like, hey, maybe we need to study the scriptures more and let God's plan take shape at God's pace. Uh, So uh, now hindsight, they say, is 2020. And now we are in the 2020s Mm -hmm. with a Messianic Jewish leadership that on the whole Mainly is composed of these believers who came to faith in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And there are questions about their successors. There are questions Mm -hmm. about what the next phase of development is going to be. Uh, But I can say that, you know, looking back on my early days in Messianic Judaism and then having interacted with a number of these other sectors, which we're going to mention by name in just a moment, Mm -hmm. and then you know, moving back here to North Texas and getting plugged into Messianic Judaism again, uh, I can say that we've come a very, very long way in a very short space of time. And unfortunately, patience is not often a virtue that we tend to display. We want instantaneous change now, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: it's just not always effectual, Uh, you know, put yourself into the position of some of the messy and Jewish leaders from the 1960s and 1970s. Look at their, look at their family story. You know, yeah. are you dealing with people who are Holocaust, uh, you know, did their, uh, families you know perish in the holocaust Mm -hmm. how long have they been for example in north america you know what you know Mm -hmm. what are some of the what's some of the opposition they faced from their extended families and even from the local christian community i mean take that into consideration before you start well they're not doing this right or they're not doing that right and that's Mm -hmm. and that's something that uh i mean i've done my best to say you know calm down you know, put yourself into someone else's position before you start accusing them of anything. Yep. yep. I just Absolutely briefly,
1: agree.
0: I just briefly got three books off of my bookshelf and I have uh, referred to these uh, on various podcasts, various teachings, people, everyone who's involved in the orbit of the Messianic movement. And this includes a lot of people in Hebrew roots need to examine these resources at least as a matter of their study. So they get Mm. a good idea about what it has taken to get us to this point in history. Um, Two of the absolute classic Messianic Jewish books um, are uh, Born a Jew, Jew, (laughs) Die a Jew by uh, Johanna Chernoff. This is the autobiography of Martin Chernoff. It also talks about some of the early days of the uh, Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, uh, and then another absolute classic is the Fig Tree Blossoms by Paul Lieberman, and, and this was this was a book written in you know the early nineteen seventies. So mm-hmm. you know people need to get an idea about what a lot of these people were going through back in the sixties, the seventies, uh, and what was what they were up against. I mean, this is you know we didn't just you know. A lot of people in Hebrew roots don't recognize that without Messianic Judaism, they would there would be no Hebrew roots movement.
1: I know you're right. I mean, they, yeah. they just yeah. don't.
0: Yeah. And yeah. and uh, you know this question of can Jewish people who come to faith in Israel's Messiah still be Jewish? Now to us it's like, well, yeah, of course they can be, hmm. but you've got almost two millennia of a lot of Christian theology saying no. A Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ becomes a Christian and stops right. being a Jew. Whereas yeah. whereas these pioneers were out there actively declaring that, no, believing in Yeshua as Israel's Messiah is one of the most Jewish things you can do.
1: That's right. This That's right. And it's absolutely a real problem. I mean, if you go to churches, you'll see that people who are of Jewish heritage in the church that their Jewishness is uh, disappearing if it hasn't disappeared together already, whether it's intermarriage or um, just loss of, of any identity as part of the people of Israel. Um, yeah, those things are lost. And so you're right. These pioneers of the Messianic Jewish movement, as you said, were declaring that um, it is a Jewish thing for a Jew to believe in the Jewish Messiah.
0: Right, and here's uh, another one. Before I forget, um, yeah, go ahead. this this came out originally twelve, excuse me, twenty five years ago. Jewish mm, Roots mm. by Dan, Dan Juster. Juster. Now, mm. a lot of people don't like Dan Juster. I, I have to be honest, I'm not. He's I'm not a huge fan of him either. But again, this is one of these very early messianic Jewish books that people need to read just mm-hmm. to get a good idea about what it has taken to get us to where we are today.
1: Yeah, And that's right.
0: I and uh, I was recently talking to my sister Maggie about some of these things. A lot of our problems come because people don't know where we possibly are on this ongoing narrative. Mm, they just, mm. you know, well, the church lied to me about Torah or about this or about that. And then they just, you know, plump themselves in the middle of a messianic congregation. And, well, I just watched a, a video from Michael Rood, and he says they're not doing this right or they're not doing that Right. And it's like, no, you don't understand what it has taken to get us to where right. we are today. So, yep. you know, yep. those three books, look, if you feel a, a real distinct call, if you're not Jewish to be a part of the Messianic movement, have some idea about how we got here.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yep, that would that would help and, and, and go a long ways towards uh, removing some of the contention.
0: Okay, so uh, now that that... Uh, now that our 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 early cocktails have been included, <laughs> yes. Uh, there, as I interviewed uh, David Schiller back in October, and again, he is a messianic Jewish rabbi who would be considered inclusive, and mm-hmm. he wants mm-hmm. you know people who God is genuinely leading into the messianic movement to stay in the messianic community and he doesn't actively discourage any non-jew from from doing uh any matter of torah provided it is a genuine work of the holy spirit in their lives okay Okay. Mm -hmm. which i can live with that's fine you know yeah I, Yeah. I, i
1: i agree with that i've always believed that and if i may interject something there a lot of hebrew roots folks don't realize such people exist a lot of the hebrew roots folks i interact with just assume that in the Messianic Jewish space they would be unwelcome because they are Torah observant to some degree. Um, and that's, that's so it's important highlighting that's not the case everywhere. Sure, I understand there are some congregations that right. would be like that, but it is not the case everywhere.
0: No, if you now if you go into a, a, a new congregation and you try to change everybody and they don't know who you are, they don't know where mm-hmm. the blank you came from, and, <laughs> and, yes. and yes. you are you're not trying to establish a relationship and develop trust and credibility for yourself. Yes, you will be asked to leave. And that's and not just
1: at a Messianic Jewish congregation. That's anywhere. Like if you exactly. come into somebody's house and you are a, a rude guest who's tr- rearranging the furniture, uh, that's the, the host isn't going to appreciate that. I don't right. care what, what congregation or flavor it is. Uh, yeah, if you so, come yeah, into
0: my yeah. office and you start <laughs> opening up drawers and start opening up the closets, I'm going to say you get your <laughs> out of
1: here. That's right. That's right. So it's a, it's an understandable thing if people come in um, with their theology and begin preaching it to people, whether it's you know at the egg table or or just in convers trying to convert people to their way of thinking. It's not it's not being a gracious guest. Um, So that will go a long way here. And with Jewish
0: people, it takes a long time in some cases to develop trust Mm
1: -hmm, and to develop
0: a relationship.
1: It's not something
0: that, you know, just automatically clicks with some because, you Mm -hmm. know, one of the big facets of the Jewish experience is how many times have the Gentile powers betrayed their Jewish community?
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, just I mean, we were reading the Hanukkah story the other week, right? And and here it was where it's like, "Oh, much of Israel went astray with with uh, the k- wicked king Antiochus and his decrees." Yeah, this is this is an ingrained thing. So yeah, you're right. And Trust and if you understand
0: in a particular, if you recognize that at least here in North America, most yeah. Jews uh, came to North America, not not everyone, but but the but the majority of the Jewish population came from the the former Russian Empire around the turn of the last century and into the early 20th century, escaping the pogroms and mm. and that they were this persecuted minority and that the state was, Oh, we'll give you more rights. We'll be more tolerant. And then there's some kind of a economic downturn or a plague and oh, it's the Jews fault. You know, mm-hmm. it's when you can understand that kind of a narrative, that the Jews are always the problem. They're always the scapegoat. Uh, then, it it should not be a surprise why it will take time to develop trust and credibility with Messianic Jewish leaders. I'm still trying to do it myself with certain people, Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, and, 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 and it is, and, and it is kind of a a shock that there are, I'm not going to mention any names, but there are, there are Messianic Jewish leaders who've been in the movement for well over 50 years. And you can see that they themselves are still dealing with the issue of what does it mean for me To believe in Yeshua as Messiah and still be Jewish.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's not
0: everyone, but 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 it is some, and uh, they may not even come from an Orthodox background. They may come from a very liberal, progressive background, but they're still dealing with this.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right.
0: So I think that if it had been stressed that it's this, this is a first generation movement, a lot of problems could have been avoided agreed agreed it's unfortunate but
1: uh, all we can do is affect the future and that's one of the reasons we're having this conversation exactly yeah. we're, we're trying
0: to get it out there yep so okay so David Schiller again he, he he's an inclusive messy and a Jewish leader I think many people want to be inclusive uh, but they know it comes with risk you know because not everyone's going to be like John McKee and be patient and just want to try to figure things out before he starts talking to people. (laughs) (laughs) He wants to get a lay of the land first. some people just want to, you know, they have to talk. They can't keep their (laughs) mouth shut and they have to talk about, Oh, don't you know about Nehemia Gordon and the Hebrew (laughs) Matthew and the care and blah, 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 blah. You know, some people, uh, you know, they have to, have the proverbial last word, yeah. uh, but no, you've got Messian Jewish leaders who are inclusive, but they do see, uh, basically, with the whole Hebrew root sector, four really big areas of division and contention that they that they've seen in their own congregations. And as we mention these things, I can say that yes, I've talked about them before, and I've written about them before, and I. As, as a Bible teacher, as a theologian, I believe they need to be addressed, you know, mm-hmm. not only in the congregation, but from the proverbial bema. Um, yeah. I don't believe in just like, well, we're just going to put this aside. And then when there's an explosion, we'll deal with the radiation sickness. You know, mm-hmm. I believe in preventing an explosion. explosion in
1: the first place. Yes, yes. And
0: I, I believe in trying to prevent as many things as you can, uh, because I know these, these things uh, make people uncomfortable. And then you're like, well, you're going after one of my favorite teachers.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah. There's also, if you have these convictions, sometimes you feel personally attacked, you know, where it's like, oh, well, they're teaching against what I believe. Well, I'm, I feel personally attacked by that. And that's an understandable human reaction.
0: Right. And, and, and some of the Messianic Jewish responses to these different matters has not always been great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of it yeah. has been, well, we released a position paper saying we don't want this in our congregation and mm-hmm. congregations. And the reason why is all this bad behavior. Okay, but how do I deal with this theologically?
1: Yeah, the actual and, text of scripture. It's like we don't even go
0: yeah. into addressing that.
1: So, I know. Yeah. So I have
0: seen that yeah. before. And Yes, you and I both. Yeah. Uh, and that that doesn't help either because some, some people would say, well, you're only going after their behavior or their bad behavior, but mm-hmm. you won't deal with the issue. Well, maybe they're right about the issue.
1: Mm. Yeah, that yeah. is
0: that is that is something that can happen. So, okay, yeah. not yeah. to leave anybody in uh, in uh, suspense any longer. Mm-hmm. And problem number one. All right, one law. Rigidity.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, just to define, we, I said think most, we said rigidity here. We said rigidity. Yeah. Yep. And to define for anyone who doesn't know, one law speaks of this idea that um, the Torah is both for Jews and Gentiles. Is is maybe how we could sum it up in a in a nutshell. Um, and it comes from the Torah itself, where it says there is to be one law for you for for the native born and for the foreigner among you. Um, rigidity, though one law rigidity. What do we mean by that? Meaning you are very dogmatic about one law. This is a problem that David Schiller in your interview, John, had raised. Uh, As I said before, if uh, grace goes so far here, I think it's fine to uh, have a, I I genuinely believe this, and, and I think it's a reflection of the reality of the messianic movement, that people all over the movement have a variety of views about the Torah. If you go to Israeli messianic congregations, many of them resemble more an evangelical church with very, very little Torah. Uh, And here in the United States, it can vary all over the place. Um, So I think it's, it's, it's good to recognize. We can have variance on this without breaking fellowship. Um, speaking from my experience as a congregational leader for the last decade, I had led a messianic congregation in Minnesota. That was, I would say, largely Hebrew roots. um, But we still had that vision for the salvation of all Israel that I think drives a lot of messianic Judaism. Um, And my, my experience as a leadership in leadership there is this. I didn't want people coming in, trying to teach me, or trying to teach others at the congregation, we would have people we've never met before, who would come in and spend hours uh, speaking uh, to individuals at the Oneg table, and then between worship and the teaching, and then after the teaching, telling them about all kinds of crazy theories, everything from, you know, flat earth or to wild conspiracy theories about, uh, you, you name it. I mean, right. I, I could seriously list so many things to me that was, that was disruptive to our community. We had people literally evangelizing flat earth of all things. And to me, and I, and I suspect a lot of congregational leaders, um, this is one of the major concerns we have with people who have strong views on something. Look, I, if you're coming to a congregation, you are a guest there, be a gracious guest where you have grace for others. It is not your place to be preaching to others. We actually had one gentleman where we told him, we said, um, you can have your views to yourself. You know, we're not going to um, spend hours debating back and forth with you about flat earth. Um, but if you can't stop preaching it here, then you're not welcomed here. And I, and I hate to say that to people, but this gentleman ended up saying, no, I, I refuse that. I'm, I, I refuse to abide by that. And we said, okay well, the door's that way. (laughs) And he said, well, I'm going to start my own congregation. And we're like, okay, you do whatever you need to do, but you're not welcomed here if you can't be a gracious guest here. And so I I guess that's one thing I wanted to underscore here is I suspect um, Rabbi Schiller here probably feels something similar with regards to one law rigidity, that if someone comes into the congregation and says, um, you all need to be keeping Torah, the way I do, by the way, you know, it's going to differ from Orthodox Judaism, it's going to differ from everything else. Um, you have to do this, otherwise you are not, whether it's saved, or you're not doing the work of God, or you don't have any merit with God, whatever it may be. That That is disruptive to a community, and I suspect uh, Schiller really feels probably... Uh, a, similar he's, he's likely seen some things like this again it's it's okay to to have differing views on that i'm i consider myself very torah positive i think it's it's good direction for god's people uh, whether jewish or non-jewish um, but i wouldn't go into a congregation where i'm a guest and begin preaching my views to everyone it just wouldn't be the right order it would be disruptive to um, the the community there and it would be being ungracious uh, as a guest so yeah that, that's kind of my thoughts on this oh i would i would add one more thing here john and I'll, I'll let you uh give your thoughts if you are one law if you believe the torah is for you start with you i've seen so many torah people who are not actually following torah themselves they're they're um, Torah terrorists. There's bad fruit coming from them. Um, so I would say this if um, if this is your view that you are convinced the Torah is for you, uh, then first apply it to yourself. Uh, if you've got a family, apply it to your family. Um, and if those things are or, are in order, and you're demonstrating good fruit, and you're not fighting with leadership and others, and causing a disturbance in the community, and you're not being a Torah terrorist. I think most Messianic Jew, uh, Jewish congregations would welcome such a person, even if they differ uh, with with your views on Torah.
0: Right. Um, finishing up a little note here to myself, mm-hmm. um, but I know that as I have you know interacted with different Messianic people over the years, particularly over the past five to six years, there was a an encounter I had. Uh, this was at Messiah 2017, and mm-hmm. you know we spend three hours or more in the afternoon in the marketplace, and it, a lot of it is sitting down and mm-hmm. doing nothing. Uh, you know, because like the the first and last nights of the whole event, that's when you know most people come to your marketplace uh, table. Okay, uh, sure, but and that's okay. But but uh, there was a Messianic Jewish leader uh, who came up to me, and he just said, you know, hey. Uh, you're here, I would like to know what your position is regarding Torah for Gentiles. And I said, this is what I believe. I believe, and maybe this is too much of my Wesleyan holiness background at work here, but I believe that following God's Torah is a work of God's Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit transcribing God's commandments onto the hearts and minds of the redeemed at the Holy Spirit's pace. Yes. And I'm not the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. but what I can do is I can tell you the journey that I've been on, and hopefully that will bear witness with someone, uh, mm-hmm. and it will be a fruitful uh, encounter. And that was okay with him. That was okay, because mm-hmm. I stressed the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, and how commandment Obedience begins with love for God and love for neighbor. It doesn't stop there, but that's where nice. it begins.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so uh, that wasn't an issue because I didn't come across as being legalistic. I'm not going to go and coerce people or force people to do something contrary to their will. I'm yeah. instead going to live an example that's hopefully more and more like Yeshua, uh, and mm-hmm. I'm learning to understand who he is and who his early followers were better. Uh, now I don't identify with a quote unquote, one law theology, but does that all of a sudden mean that, oh, you're telling me that God's Torah isn't for all of God's people? No, I think it's actually a subtle theological distinction, but a very important one. What I believe is clearly stated in Deuteronomy 31, 11 through 13. So I'm going to read this. Um, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien, that's the gear the sojourner, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who is in your town in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Mm -hmm. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So you can't tell me that, well, you don't believe Torah isn't for all of God's people. Here in Deuteronomy, it says that everyone in the mixed community of ancient Israel was to learn and to follow all of the words of this law. So I absolutely believe in Torah education for everyone. Now, one of the challenges is, you know, what do you do with these different Bible passages, which stress one law for the native and the sojourner? Mm-hmm. Theologically, there are people who take that as being a general statement. Other people take that as being a restricted statement to the legislation, which immediately fo- is preceded or follows. Okay. Okay. So for example, uh, you know, certain sacrificial requirements that were to be presented at the tabernacle and later the temple. There's to be uniformity between the native born and sojourner within ancient Israel rather than, well, the native gets to do this and then the sojourner has to do that much more in terms of a sacrifice. No, there's uniformity here. You Mm, can't take mm. advantage of the sojourner just because he's not native born. Uh, So theologically, I see those passages as representing some key places in the jurisprudence of ancient Israel, where in other ancient Near Eastern societies, an outsider who had entered in was much more likely to be taken advantage of than not. Hmm. And so Hmm. this is stressing fairness for the native and the sojourner. Uh, For example, you wanted to eat the Passover sacrifice in Exodus 12. You had to be circumcised. That's uniform for the native as well as the sojourner. It's not like the sojourner mm-hmm. had to be circumcised and then pay so many shekels as well in order to eat the Passover sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it stresses commonality between the native and the sojourner. But personally, I just don't think it's the place to stress, you know, God's Torah being relevant for all of God's people. Because then you then you then you encounter uh, within the. Uh legislation. Well, there's uniform capital punishment for the blasphemer, both the mm-hmm. native-born as well as the sojourner. Well, what are we supposed to do with that today? You know, um, mm-hmm. and this is where, you know, I not to get ahead of myself, I've gotten into some debates with you know prominent uh leaders in the one Torah sub-movement uh mm-hmm. regarding matters like you know, are you sure you want to emphasize this? I mean, why don't you just emphasize Torah education for all? Mm. And uh, it hasn't been—it hasn't been good. It, it hasn't been good. i have seen uh, there be a lot of one law rigidity. Uh, I personally don't don't like it when I see Exodus twelve quoted, one law for the native of the sojourner. It's like, yeah. what's the context of that passage? You know, context is always king. And what and you I, I can guarantee you most people haven't looked into what these instructions meant for ancient Israel. They just mm-hmm. you are taking a sound bite and you know meme right, it. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're just gonna meme it all over the all <laughs> over the internet, meme, 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 Instagram, Instagram, mm-hmm. Facebook, you know, Twitter, all this. And yeah. and there's no context. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. difficult to conclude that everyone in the community of ancient Israel. Was called to hear and follow Moses' teaching. Now, yeah. there are some people who I think uh, they've gone to they've gone overboard in stressing. Well, you know, native and sojourner don't have that much in common in ancient Israel. I don't think mm. that is sustainable from a biblical standpoint. Okay. Uh, okay. But then I think that there are people on the one law side who, well, native and sojourner are just exactly the same, which equally so is, is, is a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. If for any other reason, sojourners who entered into ancient Israel had no tribal inheritance in the Holy uh, land. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. just an obvious one. Mm,
1: and, interesting.
0: Uh, and there, and there may, may be one or a few other differences between native and sojourner often relating to the sojourners low economic status or frequent low economic status. Ah, mm-hmm. um, Cause a mm-hmm. lot of sojourners who came into ancient Israel were in, And dire straits. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's not stressed enough. But, you know, I've had discussions with Messianic Jewish leaders. Okay, native and sojourner have far more in common than not. But for us today in the post-resurrection era, Torah is a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It begins with love for God and love for neighbor. And Mm. everything that any of us do, whether we're Jewish or not Jewish, has got to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. you know, I know that you know, a number of the you know, prominent you know, one law teachers out there, uh, people like Tim Haig and, and whomever, mm-hmm. I know that they've had a lot of rejection from the Messianic Jewish movement, but I personally haven't, uh, I personally don't think they've made their job any easier by how they've responded to some of that rejection.
1: Oh, interesting. You know, okay.
0: Taking you know, they haven't really bothered to take into consideration Messianic Judaism as a first generation movement.
1: Okay, um, mm-hmm.
0: you know, I have had disagreements, strong disagreements over some of the rigidity, and you know, not really wanting to. Okay, what did these instructions mean for ancient Israel? How do we deduce principles for today? Um, I've gotten in big trouble with what's the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the sanctification process what you know because uh i think for example the torah resource people even though they haven't said that they are cessationists uh, they might be so i don't mm-hmm, know what they mm-hmm. believe about the gifts of the holy spirit okay um, mm-hmm. and now in particular if you watch the rob and caleb show which is also called messiah uh, matters, messiah huh? matters mm-hmm. um, they are really not dealing at all with issues taking place in messianic judaism or for that matter judaism They've mm-hmm. taken on a much more of a reformed theological bend, which is okay up to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where they stand regarding eschatology, whether they're premillennial or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: th- that is a problem that uh, a lot of people would have with them in the Messianic Jewish world, myself included, because uh, it, it begs the question, what about the state of Israel? Was that, you know, did that happen according to Bible prophecy? Mm-hmm. Um they come across increasingly, in my view, as being more and more supersessionist. Um, oh, you hmm. know, Israel is just this abstract term; it can be anybody, hmm. um, and they don't guard as much as they should against potential claims of replacement theology. Because actually, because actually, the best way you can guard against replacement theology if you're not Jewish yeah. um, and you believe in a in a an enlarged kingdom realm of Israel, you know, the tabernacle of David. Yes. Um, the best way to guard against replacement theology is make sure that issues that matter to Messianic Jews and the salvation of the Jewish people matter to you.
1: Yes, that's right. Okay. Align yourself. Yeah. And, yeah and guess what? Right.
0: All claims for replacement theology will just fall away. Mm, they, yeah. They, good. They, they, but if you are only going to focus on this as a non-Jewish movement and Torah for non-Jews, um, And then the theological issues that get you going are the things that get, you know, people in the Reformed theological tradition going. It's not Mm -hmm. going to be that long before where you say or you, you speak about Messiah sacrificed on the tree rather than Christ crucified. And it's like, okay, well, Jewish outreach and evangelism, the very reason why this movement started
1: uh-huh. Is is being it's not, dis- not really that diminished there. You. Interesting. I uh I, I think I mentioned to you, John, I've I've been in fairly close contact with um some of the one law folks, the hags uh in particular. Um I had dinner with uh Caleb and his wife recently. So these are some questions I'll have to ask them. It hasn't come across to me personally that um they're they're super I, I assume they would they would contest that. Uh, but you're right. Perhaps there has to be some realignment there. I, I know what you're saying too, with regards to language. Sometimes that the way that we present the gospel and speak about it um, can be can be difficult for Jewish people. Uh, and if we're kind of reverting to the Christian way of speaking about, you know, Christ crucified uh, in in that language, that that um, maybe that's not aligning with the Messianic Jewish movement. I'll have to discuss these things with Caleb. Maybe we'll have another show about it uh, come. Come another time. Right.
0: And I know that I have a different personality than a lot of the one law people, you know, I'm willing mm-hmm. to sit down with, you know, some of the Messianic Jewish leaders and mm-hmm. okay, let's mm-hmm. hammer out an arrangement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, and, yeah. and let's work to it because, uh, you know, Paul's uh, burden in Romans nine, 10 and 11 is mm-hmm. a burden that, you know, even people like me feel. And mm-hmm. until we see some massive salvation of Jewish people, we're not going to see the return of Israel's Messiah, yeah, yeah, and and so yeah, it might just be that I'm wired, you know, differently than, than some of the you know the mm-hmm. one law leaders, and, and I'm not here to say that I haven't benefited from some of the research sure. and scholarship, yeah, uh, yeah, but all of us are familiar with the the big change that First Roots of Zion went That's through right. back in two thousand nine, and. And then the response that Torah Resource had to that, and I just found myself, mm-hmm. you know, charting a third independent path. And 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 I yeah, guess that's I that's just the ways. way I've always been. It's, mm-hmm. It, it, it mm-hmm. has been. And 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 I know that, uh, yeah, that, that that that's just the way that's just the way I see things. And we'll just mm-hmm. see how you know the one law sub movement uh, develops. Now,
1: yeah. I
0: I can say that there are Messianic Jewish people I know they don't want to even bring this up and they don't sure. want to discuss what these passages meant for ancient Israel they just want to skip over it
1: mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
0: i remember being in a in a congregation where a messianic congregational leader was doing a a week by week study of the book of acts and wouldn't you know mm-hmm. it we went from acts, acts, acts chapter 14 to acts chapter 16
1: <laughs> oh really wow yeah, wow that's so, as bad as skipping over isaiah 53 and i mean uh, far, uh... so uh,
0: so it was clear enough that Okay, you just don't want to have to deal uh, with it interesting
1: yeah and yeah.
0: and you know those are some things that you know and and maybe it it it, do, it is a, a sign that we are dealing with a first generation movement um, yeah. and they mm-hmm. and you know the trauma that a lot of messianic Jews had in coming to faith in Yeshua, even if some of them are in their early eighties now, really yeah. was that big. That's right. That's right. And John, if, if I can add one more
1: thing to this one law perspective, um, I think a lot of folks who are one law, who see Torah as applicable to non-Jews, um, that they fear when they hear people saying, oh, you can't talk about one law, they fear what what's actually being said is um, your Torah observance is invalid. That's I think a lot of people feel that way. And what I'd like to highlight is There is not a single person in the Messianic Jewish movement who would say, you know, don't keep, take the 10 commandments. No one's going to say, oh, you know, the 10 commandments, um, you know, these aren't applicable to you. You might have some talk about Shabbat, but even that's, I I don't know, I think fairly, fairly rare. You're going to have people who are Torah positive on that level. You're going to have people who will say, oh, um, in the Messianic Jewish movement, um, Caring for the poor, caring for the sick—these things that Yeshua even reiterated in the Gospels—that um, these are these are good for all of God's people. So I, I think there's a great deal of of common ground that One Law people and the Messianic Jewish movement share in in pro
0: Torah, right? And you know, positivity. And my teachings are unambiguous. I believe mm-hmm. that all of God's people should be doing these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. I don't believe institutions like Shabbat are only for the Jews or kosher are only for the Jews or the appointed times are only for the Jews. Um, mm-hmm. I believe we should all be doing these things, but it should also be a work of the Holy spirit. Yes. But I would stress that the Messianic Jewish movement didn't get started to be a Torah for Gentiles movement. That's right. That started true. out to declare the good news of Israel's Messiah to the Jewish community. That's right. And so if you're not Jewish and God is leading you into this movement Mm -hmm. What contribution are you going to be making to that mission?
1: Yes, which originally was a move
0: of God. And I I personally, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. I just don't see people who identify with a one law or one Torah uh, ideology trying to contribute to that mission.
1: Interesting. Um, Yeah, my experience has been different. Um, But again, maybe it's different congregations, different people. I was grateful to see at my congregation a lot of folks, a lot of one law folks, non-Jews, um, who s- did believe in and wanted to contribute towards the salvation of the Jewish people. But you're right. Um, I think in some some areas and, and maybe in some congregations, uh, that isn't the case.
0: All right. So if that isn't hot enough, ladies and gentlemen.
1: All right, here we go. Okay. Even yeah, we're, get,
0: we're <laughs> going even hotter now. Uh, number two, problem number two. Two-house and Israelite identity. uh
1: uh-huh.
0: Now, um, okay, let's make something perfectly clear before we get into what a lot of people in Messianic Judaism think of as two-house. Okay. Um, there are plenty of people in Messianic Jewish uh, leadership who recognize that there are people groups on planet Earth mm-hmm. separate from the worldwide Jewish community in little parts of uh, India India and Africa and and the Middle Mm -hmm. East who are descended from the exiled northern kingdom and they've been recognized Mm -hmm. as legitimate pockets of the lost tribes by rabbis in Israel. Right, the rabbinate
1: in Israel, yeah. And
0: they Mm -hmm. would recognize finer details notwithstanding that Mm -hmm. a prophecy like Ezekiel 37, 15 to 28 is unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that said, when people in Messianic Judaism think of two house, they're not necessarily thinking about, okay, Ezekiel 37, you know, fulfilled or unfulfilled. Yeah, They're thinking of a largely non-Jewish, Caucasian, Northern European, even British, but... They're thinking of a, of a movement mainly of European people who think that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of Israelites on planet Earth. And the reason mm-hmm. why Messianic Judaism is being swamped with non-Jews is because these are all members of the Lost Tribes, mm-hmm. and that the Lost Tribes went and then became the royal families of Europe, and of course, the throne of Great Britain, and Herbert Armstrong was a prophet oh. or an apostle, and mm-hmm. even... The Worldwide Church of God was a precursor to the modern Messianic Jewish movement. And there's truth in the Christian identity movement um, and all these other things. Uh, When a lot of today's Messianic Jews hear that, they want to run home and hide (laughs) under their beds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they they really, really do. And Mm -hmm. they see a book, for example, like, Who is Israel by Batia Wooten, and they're like, this book is a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, Not engaged with any kind of real Bible scholarship, strong concordance definitions for Hebrew and Uh. Greek, not a huge amount of engagement with Jewish resources, which would would consider a prophecy like Ezekiel 37 uh, unfulfilled, or for that matter, Christian resources. They see a movement of non-Jews who believe themselves to be Descendants of the Lost Tribes, the mm-hmm. Northern Kingdom, and not only do they believe that they must have some kind of physical connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm-hmm. but there are billions of them on earth, which means that if there are like only 18 million Jews on earth today, that's pretty pitiful, uh, especially in view of the Holocaust. And they want to yeah. come into the, our congregations, and they want to change everything. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, this is understandable. Um, if uh, Maybe maybe I, I should lay a, a little bit of groundwork here in, to say that in some ways, the Messianic Jewish movement has helped cause this problem. Um, and the reason being some of the things you mentioned, John, with regards to non-Jews being second-class citizens and congregations made to feel unwelcome in our congregations. Um, and I think that produced a kind of inferior, uh, inferiority complex among non-Jews, um, and made them feel unwelcome. And so, uh, when this idea of, well, maybe, maybe the non-Jews in our congregations are actually descendants of Jacob, well, that, that was, that was, uh, that filled a need because these were people that really felt unwelcome, felt like second class citizens, and now they've been elevated to first class citizens. It's, uh, from a purely human perspective, I, I understand that. Um, so I wanted to just to lay that groundwork a little bit to say some of this is self-inflicted, unfortunately, by the Messianic Jewish movement, by poor handling of, of Some issues, right? And I think around identity. Yes,
0: and I have I've also seen people in Messianic Judaism admit that we should have done a better job in the late 1980s and into the 1990s regarding non Jewish believers in our midst, Mm -hmm. Uh, because if these if God is genuinely leading these people into the congregation. You know, I'm trying to understand Yeshua in the feast better, trying mm. to, you know, find a place where they can be useful rather than feel used or dismissed. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. need to, you know, make sure that they are, that they find a place where they are loved and welcomed as equal brothers and sisters. Yep. Yep. Now, this was the case in some congregations, in some congregations, but in some congregations and I can attest to this, I didn't exactly feel like an equal brother or sister, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I thought that, well, you know, are the non-Jewish believers here only here to give money, give money for the, Mm -hmm. for congregational and ministry endeavors, because if that's the reason I'm gone, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not just a dollar sign. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, You're just being used. That doesn't value you as a, um, as a child of God. So,
0: you know, you see people who they feel second class, they know it's wrong. You've got, you know, some Messianic Jewish congregational leaders, they, sh- they show special ministry attention to the fellow Jewish believers, but they won't necessarily sit down and pray with you if you have a problem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you see some of this, you know, nepotism. And you're like, well, how do I overcome this? Well, I need to go find some distant Jewish ancestor, and then mm-hmm. I can be welcomed in. And right. when people exhaust their ability to find that, well, maybe this lost tribes thing is the reason I'm here. Right, uh, right. And again, yeah. and the whole, the whole, what what undergirds this is this idea: well, if I'm a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, I can get special favors
1: mm-hmm. before
0: God. I mean, yeah, I, which
1: is a faulty assumption. I've there, got yeah.
0: a hotline to heaven.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: But I do remember uh, I wasn't in attendance. Uh, I saw the notes for it. Uh, although I, I think in my last move, that it got accidentally pitched. <laughs> um, but when my parents went to the 2018 uh, IMCF uh, conference in Orlando, Paul Lieberman gave a presentation on this. Uh, the okay. whole two house thing, because he actually saw some of the very beginnings of it in maryland mm, mm. Uh, you know he, he he saw some of the some, some of the beginnings of this and he immediately recognized that the cause of this you know, isn't some of this theological stuff that will just have to be worked out over time regarding the northern and southern kingdoms it's non-jewish no. believers not feeling welcomed and not mm-hmm. being used properly in the congregation
1: Yeah.
0: And, and I think that's what spurred on a lot of this. And, uh, you know, there are, there are some people out there who, you know, they continue to really push a a specific two house doctrine, where Mm -hmm. most non Jews, well, they're here because they must be descendants of the lost tribes. I think some people who got caught up in that in the 1990s and 2000s have have toned it down considerably. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: they've, they've gotten more, well, Prophecies like Ezekiel 37 are unfulfilled. We just have to wait to find out some of the details.
1: Yeah, and that may be a reasonable path forward. As you mentioned, John, you know, there were two houses of Israel in scripture. Uh, Israel was split into two nations. Uh, and also, as you point out, the prophets do speak of a reunion of of all of Israel, both, both houses, both nations. Um, I don't think that's particularly controversial. It, it really comes... The controversy comes when, when someone makes a claim about their blood lineage to Jacob. Um, a, a friend of mine, um, Dr. Michael Schiffman, uh, who is a leader at a messianic congregation in Florida. Um, he said, a woman came up to me and told me that she was a princess from the tribe of Asher. And he said, I immediately started laughing out loud but then I was deeply troubled because she was trivializing my heritage. And he said, you know, where were these people uh, during the Holocaust? Where were these people when times were hard? Uh, you're, you're, you're here today, you know, making some unfounded claim, um, but where were you when we needed you? <laughs> you didn't identify us with us back then, um, only because it's convenient now and only because there's a benefit now. Um so I, I think that really highlights some of this problem that that messianic Jews have with the two house idea. It's not so much that this idea that there was two houses or that there are even descendants of the lost tribes in the world today as you've noted even the rabbinate in Israel accepts this. The right and Jonathan
0: Bernes takes yeah. medical missions to Africa, to Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. to India, Mm -hmm. to minister to people who have been identified as said lost tribes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the real problem then is when it goes beyond the biblical text, and I see a lot of, I have seen a lot of Two House folks rely on legends and poor scholarship to maintain that Many or most or even all of the messianic, uh, excuse me, of the non-Jews in the messianic Jewish movement, that those people are actually descendants of the lost tribes. Um, What I think we can do, uh, if if folks have that view, again, I'm I'm not going to um, dissuade from this or that idea. What I would like to say is, a person in the messianic movement can have a two-house view that sees that eschatological regathering of Israel. Uh, Without causing offense in a congregation, it's possible. And I think if Hebrew roots folks would, again, be humble and be gracious guests, um, and the Messianic Jewish hosts allow for that kind of big tent idea of the Messianic movement, I think we can tolerate differences on this without um, causing a break in fellowship. So I think some work could be done on both sides, but primarily on the Hebrew Roots side, because there has been a reliance on legends and poor scholarship to claim descent from Jacob. Final thing I'd like to say with this too is something I think Messianic Jews and Hebrew roots folks can agree on here is that in Messiah, you don't have any special favors before God based on your blood lineage. You don't. Um, if you did, right. then, you know, Harvey Weinstein would be a saint and instead he's in jail for rape. You know, he's, he's a descendant, a blood descendant of Jacob. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't grant you any standing before God. And so I think this is a common ground that we can have together to say that, you know what, whether you are Jewish or not, the Jewish Messiah whom the father has sent has brought us into one family. And that's a beautiful thing that we can have common ground in.
0: I, I really do wish back at the turn of the millennium, when that uh, Ephraimite error, white paper got released. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Because, in that white paper, okay, it goes after you know some of the shoddy scholarship of the Wootons, which wasn't that engaged, but mm-hmm. even more so, it went against some of the bad behavior of Moshe uh, um, yeah who
1: yeah.
0: was a very strong sacred name advocate, and now uh, is a is a is a polygamist. polygamist. I, know. Uh, I know. So okay, I understand the whole element of you know we got to stay away from this you know the the this this aberrant behavior we got to stay away from things like polygamy uh we know that there are some people who have been within the orbit of two house and then have gone uh an even further direction uh, mm. someone uh who you may encounter on social media from time to time matthew nolan of torrent oh, yeah. Tribes. Mm-hmm. um he is vehemently anti-semitic and anti-jewish
1: yeah um, he mm-hmm.
0: believes that the Ashkenazi Jews that basically would be Jewish people from central and Eastern European backgrounds, the Zionist movement. uh, He believes that, you know, Ashkenazi Jews are Khazars, They're imposters. The Zionist movement is Luciferian. You know, the whole thing about the protocols of the elders of Zion, the state of Israel is a satanic counterfeit. The Holocaust was all faked. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Messianic Judaism is right to warn against and absolutely. keep hell out of its congregations.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, that's but, that's basically the the Black Hebrew Israelite doctrine repackaged. Right, yeah, it's really wicked. So,
0: so these are the kinds of things that that they want out of their congregations. They don't want to have yeah. to deal with this. And and yes. it's true. Yep. However, if you don't discuss something like, okay, what about the northern and the southern kingdoms and What about these people taken away to Assyria? And what do I do with the prophecy like Ezekiel 37? Mm -hmm. If you don't address it in a reasonable enough way, if all you say is we're not going to talk about this, then people will say, well, maybe there's something to this, and then they will go investigate Mm it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that we people in ministry today have to very much keep in mind, regardless of what the issue is. Don't tell millennials, especially, well, we're just not going to talk about this. Because Mm -hmm. they can, uh, it used to be, well, I can go home and I can pull up stuff on the internet. Now we've got these things called smartphones and we can pull it up right there as Mm -hmm. people are speaking. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's an uncomfortable topic. Uh, I don't think things had to turn out the way that they did around the turn of the millennium. Uh, I know that we are dealing with dominant personalities on both sides. uh, And I don't think it also helped that one of the main two house people uh, very early on was female. And not everyone in today's Messianic community likes females Hmm. speaking about Hmm. spiritual matters. Uh, So that just kind of compounded the difficulty even more so. Uh, But again, this is just one of these things that, we continue to talk about it, and we continue to try to deflate uh, potential circumstances. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if that is not spicy enough,
1: not <laughs> we're going spicy. habanero now. You know, before we were a little lower.
0: <laughs> now this is like—I mean, we are. Uh, this is even. This is even hotter. Uh, problem number three: mm-hmm. sacred name onlyism. Now, I'm sure all of you all have watched Star Wars. Uh, Okay, I watch Star Trek more, but you've heard of the sand people. Well, we're now going to talk about the snow people. Snow people,
1: right, sacred name only.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The snow people. I mean, these people are, they they can really cause some problems Mm -hmm. in a Messianic congregation. So, uh, Judah, why don't you tell us some of your experiences (laughs)
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So sacred name first. There's maybe sacred name and sacred name onlyism. I'd like to make a distinction. Sacred name ism, if you will, uh, believes that um, we shouldn't refrain from using God's divine name. It's usually Yahweh or Jehovah or some rendition of that. We shouldn't refrain from using it because uh, it's a rabbinic innovation and and not biblical. Okay, so that's sacred name ism. You could define it in a nutshell. Sacred name only ism would mean you can only use God's divine name. You would you can only say Yahweh, Jehovah. You can't say Lord or God or Elohim, things like that. Um, my experience in this is. It's wild, man. It's all over the place. I had, I've had people tell me, I run Hava Messianic Radio. It's Messianic, Jewish, and Hebrew Roots Music. And I've had people contact me, um, numerous people. This isn't a one-time thing. Um, telling me I need to remove music that doesn't have the divine name in it. If you say Lord or say Adonai, well, you need to remove that music because that's, re- that's replacing God's name would be sacred name only people i've had the reverse people tell me no you need to remove anything that says jehovah or yahweh or including some of paul wilbur's own music by the way (laughs) which you know he does he does use the uh variations of the name in some of his music um you know people telling me you need to remove that because that's sacred name only stuff uh i think people are being way too dogmatic here it's worth uh it, it's worth first saying that scripture itself uses both honoring titles, honorific titles for God. It also uses uh, names for God, including Yahweh or, or you know, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh in Hebrew. Uh, and because of that, I think I, my personal view on this is we should allow people to do what is their conviction. If you, are, if you feel convicted by God um, to, to use the divine name in your prayer, by all means. I think once we step into a congregation, again, we have to have, be humble and be gracious. You have to be a gracious guest. One thing that bothered me at my congregation was sometimes songs or liturgy would call for Adonai or something like that. And people would very loudly interject their pronunciation of the name. If you can imagine all at once a bunch of people saying Yahweh, others saying Yahuwah, and others saying Adonai, it can be kind of disruptive. Um, it can kind of disrupt that, um, that unity. And so what I'm saying is, by all means, um, whatever your conviction is, God knows you're speaking to him, whether you say Jesus or Yeshua whether you say God or Adonai or Elohim or some other title. Um, But in a congregational setting, we have to to respect one another. You know, John, you said the Torah starts with love God and love your neighbor. Part of loving your neighbor is when you are within a congregation, you're being a gracious guest, having that grace for others. And so I would say when you're in a congregational setting, uh, don't be dogmatic about the name. Something that's more important than being right is uh, loving your brother. That's more important than being right. So you could be right about the sacred name, whether not to use it or whether to use it, uh, but still be in sin by causing stumbling for others. And um, that's, I I, I think, I suspect Rabbi Schiller um, feels a similar thing here, that when some sacred name only people come into a congregation and suddenly, you know, maybe it's, they're asked to pray, as you mentioned, John, before this podcast, and suddenly they're spouting off Yahuashua or some, some strange non-Hebrew version of, of God's name. It, it's disruptive to a community, and it's just not being a gracious guest. So that's, that's my suggestion here for Hebrew Roots folks is um, to have that grace and humility when you're in a congregational setting, not to be dogmatic when you're with brothers and sisters to cause them to stumble over something as simple as the name. I'd also like to remind folks that God used names uh, for Him that were once redirected to other gods. You know, the the title El god that's right, that's right—was uh, was a chief a Canaanite uh, region deity, um, and God still uses that in the right. And text Baal is used Bible. as a
0: title for, for that's right, God that's of right. Israel. Yes,
1: yeah. Um, so you know this idea that you know, we're erasing God's name by using titles or even some people have said Adon was, you know, based on some pagan. It's like, no, even if that were true, and I suspect many of them were, even if, even if it were true, God can do that um, because he does it in the scriptures. And it's okay because he allowed for it. Um, so we, we can't be more dogmatic on this issue than God himself. <laughs> so that's, that's my, uh, that's my bottom line, John.
0: Um. Uh, before I get into a few more technical points, I remember a story. I believe it was uh, when I was attending Messiah 2019 uh, up in Pennsylvania, and Sharon Wilbur. This is you know Paul Wilbur's uh, daughter-in-law. This is right. Joel, Joel Chernoff's, Chernoff's daughter. daughter. Mm-hmm. She sang a song, and the song was entitled Yahweh. And it was just, you know, Yahweh. I mean, I don't know, a lot of Yahweh's in the song. Okay, okay. And you have to remember you're at an event that has huge numbers of Messianic Jewish pioneers. Mm -hmm. And when this evening session was over, Joel Lieberman grabbed me by the arm and he said, I'm the new president of the MJAA and I've got 50 emails on my phone. (laughs) And it was (laughs) all about this song. (laughs) Yeah. The song. Uh And, um, and I think some of them even, they weren't just from people there locally. Some of them were from people watching the live stream. So, you know, this is something, the whole sacred name issue is something that gets the blood pumping in a Messianic Jewish environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, you know, coming into the Messianic community, I was reared on things like the complete Jewish Bible and I was okay. reared on that standard Jewish protocol, God, God, in the Hebrew scriptures, undeniably has a proper name, yod heh vav Right. You know, and in the protocol of the congregation, a Messianic congregation is going to mirror what is done at the Jewish synagogue. We are going to say Adonai when the yod heh vav appears. Okay. And, sure. you know, and what that means for people who are speaking English is we just say Lord, or we mm. can also say God, the equivalent mm-hmm. of Elohim. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it really wasn't until I would say the late 1990s and the early 2000s when uh, we were interacting more with people in, in this who identified as one law or two house or Hebrew roots that this whole issue of the divine name really came up. Mm-hmm. And okay, you know, yod is in the is in the text of scripture. You know, most scholars think it was either Yahweh or Yahweh, uh, mm-hmm. but then the question became, well, Are we on board with the Messianic Jewish mission, which follows, you know, mainstream Jewish uh, protocol, which many people believe Yeshua and his disciples followed, uh, Mm -hmm. because, you know, especially like in the Gospel of Matthew, you see references to kingdom of heaven all over the place. Right, right. Is, Circum- it, which is the terminology of, which is terminology used to simply refer to God.
1: God, right. Heaven yeah. instead of God, yeah. Right.
0: So do we are we gonna be more on that side of the spectrum or are we gonna identify more with the sacred name uh-huh. only ideology? Because yeah. when you get into the sacred name only movement, you find out there are a whole lot more forms for Yote than just Yahweh or Yahweh. <laughs> I mean you right. Yahuwah, <laughs> Yahoo. You know, yeah. Yehovah, Yah, I mean, just on, 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 on. Yes. And, these, and, and the thing that I think stigmatizes the sacred name only movement is, you know, they insist that you have to know the yod to be saved. And then the question becomes, okay, well, which pronunciation do I have to know in order to be saved? That's also
1: extreme dogmatism, right? People can't
0: agree on it yourselves.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Which pronunciation would even be right? Um, Yeah, that's, that's especially grievous to say they take verses like, you know, you must call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And they take that to mean you must pronounce the name exactly right. And it's like, no, that's not at all the thrust of the scripture. Right. It's so now, silly.
0: Now, in academic Protestantism, mm-hmm. uh, okay, you will encounter you know commentaries, books, articles uh, that call God Yahweh, okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. refer to, you know, they'll refer to the Yod He Vathe as Yahweh or, 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 More often than not, now it's represented as YHWH. But I'll tell you right now, there's a big, there's a huge difference between, you know, reading an academic book or publication and then in a small closed Bible study, you know, saying Yahweh as a matter Mm -hmm. of Bible study, then, you know, saying it left and right, up and down, Baruch Hashem Yahweh, Baruch Hashem Yahweh. I remember that back in the late 1990s going to some function. And uh, it just it 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 uh it brought in a very divisive, very destabilizing spirit and yeah. hmm. and it does not facilitate the messianic mission of Jewish outreach and evangelism you know some people think they're very hmm. shocked when i when I ask them, you know here are all the terms you got to be aware of that Jewish people can find offensive you know, sure. we, we say Yeshua, we don't say Jesus, we say Messiah, we don't say Christ we say hmm. Tree rather than cross, mm-hmm. um, and then I say, you know, and when in doubt, when talking to Jewish people, you know, here in North America, you know, when in doubt, what should you call God to a Jewish person? God. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> when in doubt, just, just say, say God. God. It's Everyone okay. Yeah. It's okay. But right. uh, you know, this is a this is an ideology that's caused huge divisions and. Uh, I, I don't think it, I, I think it's just, it, 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 just gets, it just gets worse and worse and worse every year.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing that bothers me about it is it can disrupt even worship. Um, usually worship is such a, a, a time where we can put aside our, our theological differences and just give praise to God. Um, but this particular one, it can disrupt worship uh because people are adamant about you know in injecting their pronunciation of the name or whatever it may be um during it which can just yeah it causes disruption in communal settings so again look if 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 you're convicted to use that in prayer you know by all means god I, god is powerful enough to understand what you mean what no matter what name you're saying but um in communal settings, I think we have to be especially humble and gracious and not cause brothers to stumble. The sacred name folks, not the sacred name only folks, will say, well, look, the Bible itself uses uh, phrases like, you know, Baruch Hashem yud vavhe. should not we also be able to use that? And what you just got at, John, is, is maybe a, a, a little fork in the road of figuring out where we're going here the messianic jewish movement its primary purpose is the salvation of the jewish people if that presents a stumbling block to the salvation of the jewish people then the answer is no we shouldn't because that goes against our our primary purpose uh if and this is i think maybe where the fork in the road comes there are other people who say ah my primary purpose isn't the salvation of the jewish people my primary purpose is a restoration of how things were, say, 1000 BC or something like that. You know, look, this is how Israel was singing these songs, these psalms, Baruch Hashem Yod He and pronouncing it this way. Look, if that's, if that's, if you're adamant, that is more important than the salvation of Israel, then maybe the Messianic movement isn't for you. You know, I, I hate to say that, but there are right, some no. people where it, the Messianic Jewish movement isn't going to be for some people. Um and maybe that's that's a case if you see that as more important than the salvation of the
0: Jews. No, people. and I have been in settings where uh you know in for example, new members classes where you know yeah. you get to you know the last two, three weeks and you know, okay, there are a lot more non-Jewish people there than Jewish people there, and some of them are influenced by some of these perspectives, and you just just kind of nicely, you know, forward the question. Well, where do you see yourself in, I don't know, three to five years? Do you see yourself mm-hmm. as actively participating in Jewish outreach and evangelism as you get acclimated to the Messianic movement You know, over the a few cycles of the appointed times and everything else? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't, and you're more on this Hebrew root side, guess what? There are do- literally dozens of places here, of course, where we live in North Texas— that you can go find and they may more readily identify with the conclusions you're coming to.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now,
0: yeah. I, I, none of us like to, you know, uh, do that for people, but uh, sometimes it is necessary in order for okay. the, the, I think more biblical mission of the Messianic movement, which is actually rooted in Romans nine, ten, and 11. Yeah. Which places yeah. us, which, which doesn't culminate until Yeshua sets foot on planet earth.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And the salvation of all Israel, which Paul says in, I think Romans 11, that it'll be life from the dead. So yeah. Um, and I think that's okay, John, for us to recognize that not everyone is called to the Messianic Jewish movement. I think it's unfortunate if someone places, say a pronunciation of the name over the salvation of the Jewish people, they place a higher priority of name pronunciation. I think that's unfortunate. I think it's it's um, ultimately putting minor issues as major issues, but there will be people like that. And it's okay for us to acknowledge and that such people don't have a, a future in the messianic movement.
0: And I think that what's really important regarding the divine name is that we follow the halakha of Yeshua and the apostles.
1: Yeah, and, which and, in the gospels, as you pointed see, out, yeah.
0: We don't see Yeshua speaking the yod now, mm-hmm. what we do see Yeshua speaking is "I am," uh, interesting akin mm-hmm. to the burning bush of, of yeah. Exodus three. We do yeah. see Yeshua condemned to death because he de- he said that he was the "I am," he mm-hmm. was the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Daniel seven. Mm-hmm. But he was not put to death on charges of blasphemy for using the divine name.
1: Interesting, yeah. And I know I was... that this,
0: I know, sacred name people would see it the other way, but you know. Mm-hmm. Yeshua did not use the Yote Vave.
1: Yeah, I was talking with, so I, I help a someone who is uh, a sacred name believer, um, Andrew Gabriel Roth. He's a Jewish believer. Um, I helped him with some of his um, ministry, his website, and some other things. And I was asking him about this. And I was like, yeah, I mean, look, from Yeshua and the disciples didn't in the Gospels, right? In, instead, we see kind of what we see in the book of Maccabees, where they talk about the uh, heaven rather, rather than even saying God, you know, the kingdom of heaven in the gospels or well, in Maccabees, it'll say something like, well, we'll see if heaven favors us this day. Um, and Roth said, well, yeah, um, it does look like they were following that except when um, Yeshua is standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest tears his clothes. It's because Yeshua um, had said that he was, He was Yahweh and uttered the divine name, something to that effect. So they claim that um, Yeshua, at least Roth does, um, did use the divine name at least once in the Gospels. But he nonetheless concedes that, yeah, it looks like the disciples weren't saying like you had to use the divine name. Roth also um, says, look, when I talk with uh, people who aren't sacred name, whether it's Jews or others, I do feel comfortable saying Yah, because even in the Jewish space, you can't, you can't uh, get away from the fact that even the names of the books of the Bible have Yah in them and hallelujah and so on. Um, and so that can be, he he was like, for me, that can be some common ground that maybe I won't say Yahweh or something, but I'll, I I can at least say Yah, because we all sing hallelujah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. You mentioned that because, uh, over a year ago, one of my, mm-hmm. you know, close Messianic Jewish friends is from New York originally, yeah. um, and was encountering sacred name people for the first time. Yes. And, you know, this is somebody who's been in the Messianic Jewish movement for, you know, over 35 years. Okay. And he had never heard anybody refer to God as Yah before. Wow. Interesting. And, <laughs> and his mother, who's uh-huh. also from New York, you know, this borderline yeah. atheist, okay. um, you know, somebody went up and, and talked about Yah to her. And, you know, she was like, you know, if I were still in my psychologist practice, you know, you'd be going to the funny farm, you know, yeah, But mm, in a straitjacket. Mm, so, so mm. actually don't, I mean, I think this is probably a point where don't assume that all Jewish people know the terms you're talking about.
1: Fair enough. Because yeah, so a lot is... of them
0: don't understand, you know, they yeah. don't know the Hebrew that you think they know. And they may not even know the Bible the way you know it, yeah, in English. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, stick with using you know God, God. and Lord, and you'll be fine. Yeah. And you'll be
1: fine. Yeah, I think that is the least common denominator. It's not offensive, and it's also biblical. I think again, let's not be dogmatic about this point. Yeah,
0: yeah, I I I remember. Um, you know, talking to you know, some of these you know, Messianic Jews who you know, got saved in the Messianic Jewish revival in the 1970s in Philadelphia mm-hmm. with the Chernoffs.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: you know, I just, you know, just it, it, we're trying to get to know each other. and it's, it's, It was fine. And, you know, just like, well, how much, you know, did you really study the scriptures going up, you know, growing up? And it was like, well, you know, we went to Hebrew school and we wanted that to be over as quickly as possible so we could go do mm-hmm. stickball. I mean, mm, that mm. was the whole mentality. It wasn't, you know, mm. it's like we're just doing this to get bar mitzvah and then it's over. I see and then it. we're going to go see. back to life. Mm. Now, uh, do, do the same things happen in the church? Yes. You know, you just go through the motions. It doesn't really mean anything to you. So, you know, you start referring to the supreme being with all these, you know, straight you know what what are perceived as being strange terms you you run the risk of pushing more jewish people away from messiah than getting them to consider him
1: yeah that's true man that's true um again if we align ourselves with the core mission of the messianic jewish movement i think we'll do well and sometimes these things can be stumbling blocks to that mission
0: all right well if we really haven't gotten hot enough for you um (laughs) Okay, I mean, we are going straight to that uh, 35-mile flat disk called the sun. Uh, I think that's what they say. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That uh, actually, we don't have to worry. This is just as an aside. Mm -hmm. We on planet Earth don't really have to worry about our sun, a yellow star, until it becomes a red giant. Mm -hmm. Then we're screwed.
1: Yes. Yes. You know. It's over then.
0: <laughs> then there we're screwed. But until then, you know, the sun is doing our our sun is doing okay. So we're going straight to uh, the surface of the sun with this one. <laughs> Problem number four: divergent calendars.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, because this understandably, is understandably because
0: this is something that doesn't just concern. Uh, the dates for the appointed times.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: it also intersects with prophecy predictions. Oh, hmm.
1: and it intersects
0: with other issues regarding the holy scriptures that today's messianic community, whether you're in Hebrew roots or messianic Judaism, doesn't often handle very well, in, yeah. in my view.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, to to sum up the the issue, uh, folks, especially in the Hebrew roots movement, will say, look. The calendar that we have today in the Jewish world, where we figure out the dating for the feasts and and uh, you know yeah the appointed times, that calendar isn't the same as the thing that was going on in the Bible, including in the Gospels. They'll say, okay, look, um, then we had you know sighting of the new moons in Israel, and you know we would look at the the barley harvest and figure out when, uh, the month, the, the new year is going to begin. Whereas what we're using today, what we figure out is the time for Passover and all the feasts, as well as things like Hanukkah is a mathematically calculated calendar created in the centuries after Yeshua, the, the Hillel calendar, I think is uh, the proper terminology where that calculated calendar is what's being used today by the Jewish world and hence Messianic congregations as well. And so Hebrew roots folks will say, well, let's get back to what they used before, what was used in the Bible, what was used during the time of the Gospels. And that results in all kinds of various opinions. Um, You know, you mentioned Nehemia Gordon. Nehemia Gordon has his own dating and calendar, he figures, oh, okay, I'm going out to check for the ripeness of the barley, and that will determine the beginning of the month, and that will then determine when Passover and everything else falls. A lot of variety of opinions. Um there was a time in my life I did feel that we should pursue this. I just thought, hey, isn't this biblical? Um it is biblical. This is we're just going back to the Bible. What I came to believe what I came to I guess change my opinion on this is what's more important than having the the precisely right date, which we probably don't even have, even with all the variety of opinions out there we still don't have. What's more important than than being right about the dating is community. And again this this is just a, a theme I'm harping on in all these questions. When you're in a community, then What matters isn't so much whether you're right, but how you're treating your brothers. And if we are breaking with the Jewish world and indeed all of the Messianic Jewish movement over the calendar, we break community with them. And I can't tell you how difficult it was uh, for me when I was celebrating a different calendar to... Uh, That was like a month different. It would be like, hey, we're celebrating, uh, you know, Sukkot this month. Oh, well, then I'm going to go with this other group over here that's celebrating it on the normal date. And then there was questions, what, when when is actually the dating? You can't just punch into Google, you know, when is the date of Passover for my calendar? You know, because there's only the Jewish calendar. Um, and so there would be confusion on dates and it was just, it was, it was wreaking havoc. It was really difficult. And I remember for me, what it ended up being was I would just celebrate the feast more than once. It was like, oh, okay, I'm going to celebrate the feast now. And then, uh, on, on this calendar and then on the Jewish calendar, I'll celebrate it again with this other community. Um, it wasn't sustainable and it is a break in, in, in real fellowship and community with the rest of the Jewish believers in the world as well as the whole Jewish world, it makes us, I think this does present, to be honest, a stumbling block to the Jewish community. If our primary purpose is the salvation of all of Israel, does this bring about that purpose or does it it cause that purpose to stumble a bit? And I would argue it does the latter. And the reason is, is because a Jewish person, whether reform or conservative or orthodox, comes into our congregation and finds us that we're actually have different dates for the feast. It's just going to be strange to them. And they're going to say, what is all this weirdness? This, these people are way off. You know, I can't, I can't do this because that's not what my heritage has been. It's not what my family's doing. It presents a stumbling block to the salvation of Jewish people. And so I've changed my mind about this, and I, I, I think com- being in community with the Jewish world and with Jewish believers in the Messianic movement is more important than having the right date.
0: Well, you make some very, very important points. My experience with the whole divergent calendars has been a little different. Okay. Uh, I know that you know coming you know entering in uh, through the Messianic Jewish door, uh, it just, you know, in, from Messianic Judaism perspective, you know, mm-hmm. the most amount of Jewish non-believers who are going to show up at congregational activities are going to show up during the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah yep. and Yom Kippur, or they're going to show up during pa- the Passover, Passover. season. Yep. So if you are following a different calendar than the mainstream Jewish community, you mm-hmm. are going to lessen the likelihood of Jewish people being presented with the good news of Yeshua. Yeah. So yeah. logically to me, it was like, well, yeah, of course the Messian Jewish movement is going to follow the mainstream Jewish calendar for mm-hmm. the dates of the appointed times. Because you, know, you need to know when the Jewish community is commemorating Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, the local synagogue says you need to pay for your seats. Messianic congregations have free seats. So, mm-hmm. guess what? Maybe Jewish non believers will show up. And okay, so they got to hear about this Yeshua thing. But mm-hmm. you know, what is going to best facilitate the mission of declaring the good news to Jewish non believers? So, I've yep. never, that's never been something that I, I was opposed to. But, of course, as you interact with people more on this independent Hebrew root side, you quickly see that there is a divergent ideology on the part of many, but not all, regarding when the appointed times are to be observed. Uh, some have a huge problem with the pre-calculated Hillel II calendar right. from the Middle Ages. They think, well, you know, why did they do that? Don't you know you have to see the, the new moon and blah, 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 blah? Well... When you have a Jewish community spread over the entire world, a pre-calculated calendar keeps the Jewish community coherent. And that mm-hmm. is what has kept the Jewish community coherent for a whole lot longer than some of you people have been observing the appointed times.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, that's,
0: I mean so a lot of <laughs> Jewish people think, you know, we've been, doing the, we've been following this calendar, whether we are orthodox, conservative, or reform, for a millennium and a half yeah, And you who were in church three years ago are telling us what the yeah. what the correct dates are for the appointed times. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. I never bought into some of these alternative calendars. I, I saw the logic of the Jewish calendar. I, I agreed with the purpose of, hey, it's kept the Jewish community together. We're here to declare the good news of Yeshua to the Jewish people if we're mm-hmm. remembering Passover a month before or a month after the Jewish community, how are we fulfilling the Messianic mission? We won't yeah. be. Yeah. And now, now I have to say that there, that there are, there are even among people who observe the, you know, the rabbinical calendar, there is some divergence here and there, like the whole issue of counting the Omer between Passover and Shavuot, sure. um, whether the, uh, Pharisaical or Sadduceical counting of the Omer is to be observed. I've gotten involved mm-hmm. in that debate before. Uh, not a surprise I actually agree with the Pharisaic traditional way of counting the Omer. I think that's where the evidence uh, points to. but there are some messianic Jewish leaders who would disagree. Um, yeah yeah uh, I, and, okay. I, and, I've, and I've seen them and I've, and I've seen that that intramural debate. Uh, ultimately, I, I, I decide to not make it a huge issue because the difference is normally two or three days anyway. So, why get into mm-hmm. that? Um, but there it has a, also
1: been. Go ahead.
0: But it is an exercise in exegesis. How much information mm. are you taking into consideration uh, mm. regarding that matter?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think those reasons alone are sufficient, to be honest. I do have a, a question. Uh, and and a comment here and the question is for you specifically john i I wanted your opinion on this with regards to romans 3 and the calendar Uh, but first i wanted to also note that in judaism uh in israel there has been some discussion about uh should we stick with the calendar we have now now that we're back in the land You know, we could return to how things were, We're, you know, we're we're looking at um, things in in the harvest to determine when the year begins. And I know there have even been some attempts. There's what's called the nascent Sanhedrin in Israel, where there's been attempts uh, to get various uh, Orthodox Jewish groups together to rule on things as kind of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of judges. And this group has discussed the possibility of, of, of changing the calendar back to how it was before the calculated Hillel II calendar. Um, if that happens, then maybe there could be some deeper discussion about, okay, then what does the Messianic Jewish movement do? Um, but I think until that happens, it's just out of order. It's, it's not our place to, to, uh, to change the calendar. It, right, and breaks, I don't...
0: I don't see that if that's if, if something like that were to happen, I don't mm-hmm. see it as being isolated to just a small group of Orthodox in Israel.
1: Yeah, I yeah. see,
0: you know, the Israeli government getting involved. I mm-hmm. see uh, the conservative and reform community, certainly here in North America, getting involved. Yes. It's something that you would need to see across the spectrum.
1: That's right. That's right. So that that would be a long time in, in the future if it ever does happen. My Then my question here, John, this is a question for you um, and whether it pertains at all to the calendar. In Romans 3, uh, the opening verses of Romans 3, Paul says, what is, advantage is there in being a Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they, the Jewish people, were entrusted with the oracles of God or the sayings of God, some translations have. I, I do wonder, and, and that's my question to you, John, is, does that speak at all to the Jewish people and setting the calendar? Because that does obviously setting the calendar has implications for the feasts and the commandments. So do you think that has an implication on the calendar?
0: I I think it has to do with the overall protocol of how things are done. Mm. And it's a protocol that cannot be easily dismissed. Okay. Mm. So, Mm. I mean, to me, if I'm going to interject myself into one of these calendar disputes, I want to be, I don't want to be alone in that. I Mm -hmm. I want to be someone who is, who is just, you know, is already a part of some ongoing conversation. And, you know, right now, you know, to to be honest, I really don't think the real issue regarding the calendar is all these people are trying to calculate, okay, this is when we do Passover. This is when we do Yom Kippur, you know, because when, when I encountered all of these alternative calendars back at the In the late 1990s and early 2000s, it wasn't about really what date we're supposed to remember, you know, Shavuot or whatever. No, Mm -hmm. the real issue, the real main issue was we're trying to calculate the return of Yeshua the Messiah. That's what all Mm -hmm. of these calendars were about. You know, and hey, you can go back to some of the original work of Michael Rood in the late 1990s. It was all about trying to calculate Mm -hmm. the return of Yeshua. I see. And, You're right. You're right. And it was based on the very popular 6,000 year doctrine that, mm-hmm. you know, we've got 6,000 years on planet Earth. And then when the 6,000 year is up, the Messiah is going to return. And mm-hmm. around the, around the, calendar year 2000, you, you you had all these people, oh, you know, we're going to hit it. And, and well, you know, maybe I forgot to carry the one in my calculations. And then mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. saw recalculations of recalculations of recalculations. Yes, And, you know, one of the things that, you know, even people in the Messianic Jewish community are unwilling to evaluate or reevaluate is, is that popular 6,000 year doctrine even biblically valid? Uh, And of course, of course, the reason that a lot of people are afraid of that is because then it opens up questions regarding Genesis 1 to 11 that Mm -hmm. we've just been putting aside for another day. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, recently on uh, Messianic Insider over the weekend, I had the opportunity to interview my brother-in-law and sister. And if you think I am candid about various issues... Uh, oh, my. <laughs> oh my. Oh <laughs> my. Yeah.
1: Great. I I, I, mean, I I will watch this. I'm I mean I'm I am I, I am
0: yeah, you know, I try to be gracious. I try to be like, okay, well let's just sit back and sip our whiskey and just talk <laughs> about these things. I mean, <laughs> they're just like, you know, look, this is the way it is. <laughs> and uh, and and they will say, you know, we've gotta talk about, you know, different matters like the age of the earth and the universe. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if i'm a, if, if I'm going to say that I have any real problem with all these different calendars, like nobody wants to deal with the real uh year issue um, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how old is planet Earth, how old is you know humanity? how old is our universe you yes. know i don 't see anybody with the balls to produce a <laughs> a restored biblical calendar as it were you know, with an 11-digit date going back to the Big Bang creation event. I just don't.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, okay. You
0: know, and and look, my my, my, uh, views of Genesis 1 to 11 are no secret. You know, I identify with the old earth uh, creation views of uh, Hugh Ross and Reasons to Believe. And and actually, Mm -hmm. um, there was someone at uh, the Messianic Leadership Roundtable Uh, A very prominent leader of of the MJAA, he came up rather sheepishly to my parents and me at this event. He says, you know, I'm so sorry that there's people in our organization who they won't deal with Genesis 1 to 11, and they think it's only just Mm -hmm. 6,000 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's actually a Jewish discussion that many people are unaware of in the Messianic community. Uh, mm-hmm. There are plenty of Jewish people who, when following the mainstream rabbinical calendar for the dates of the appointed times, you know, mm-hmm. this, this, this thing about, what is it, 5781, uh, they know that's just an honorary number. I was going to
1: challenge you about this because we're talking about, you know, following the Jewish world with regards to the calendar, but right. oftentimes they'll say the calendar, oh, and it's the year 5,700, right. blah, that blah, is, blah,
0: But that is an issue that does get challenged in Jewish theology, um mm-hmm. but if all you're looking at is art scroll, uh you're probably not as familiar with it.
1: I see. Um, I see. Mm-hmm.
0: But no, you go to you know conservative and reform scholarship. That's just an honorary number. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the human race is obviously much older. And and actually a better place to start is probably a resource like uh Introduction to the Old Testament by R. K. Harrison and talking mm. about the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, whether those mm. numbers can actually be added up, oh, or whether okay. they are, um, are, are telescoped genealogies. Right. And also, yep. Yep. what numbers do you use? Do you use the Hebrew Masoretic text, the the Samaritan Pentateuch, or the mm. Septuagint? Because they actually are different numbers there. Wow, so they mm. may not, uh, those, are those numbers even there for us to calculate the age of, Humanity in the age of the Earth.
1: Yeah, um, yeah,
0: interesting. So, but but yeah, you know, yeah, you know, that's actually to me the real big issue regarding the calendar, and it's it's a subject matter that many people in today's Messianic community have pushed off to the side too long, uh, because that probably affects Jewish outreach and evangelism more than any other of the things that we've discussed. Um,
1: yes, because because young Earth creationism is. A stumbling block for a lot of young people especially um, right. but yeah just scientific minded people if you're engaged with the scientific world young earth creationism is out of the question um, right so and, it's a stumbling and you, block you talk to
0: you know like my brother-in-law and sister i mean they think mm-hmm. that a young earth view is entirely unsustainable yeah. and they'll say that oh yeah this is in our young people's group, at our local congregation, this is what, this is one of the, this is one of the verboten topics that we talk about, Mm, whereas mm. the leadership stays away from anything regarding science and and the Bible.
1: mm -hmm. Uh,
0: But you talk, when you encounter Jewish people out there in the marketplace, is their rejection of Yeshua going to be more likely based on Christian anti-Semitism from the middle ages or, well, you know, I, uh, I have an MBA and, I'm in, I'm involved in banking and number crunching. And, uh, you know, we're on this tiny little speck here mm-hmm. in this galaxy of how many quintillion stars in a universe yep. of, you know, a hundred billion galaxies. Mm-hmm. You're telling me it's only 6,000 years old. Right.
1: Yeah, uh, it's... Uh,
0: no. yeah. And, and these are some of the cosmic questions, I think, that as we enter into the 2020s, the Messianic community will be dealing with more and more, but actually this Mm -hmm. is that, that to me is the real controversy regarding the calendar that nobody Mm. wants to touch at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there are some more calendar issues to be worked out in the future. Undoubtedly. Uh, I hope it goes better
0: than it has. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've given you a whole lot to uh, think about, uh, One of the reasons why these messages are pre-recorded and not live streamed is so we see you get all upset at us and then, you know, dart off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But certainly we are trying to be constructive with these discussions, constructive with these topics. Uh, Again, there are Messianic Jewish leaders and, and people of influence. They want an inclusive Messianic movement. Mm-hmm. They want non-Jewish believers who may identify as Hebrew roots on some level to be plugged into the Messianic Jewish mission. But for some of you, that may not be something you're too interested in. Uh, I, but for myself, it's something that I believe is very uh, profoundly important. Yes. Um, th- just this past week, I finished up my coursework with the IMCS, the International Alliance of Messianic Congregations and Synagogues, for being certified as a Messianic teacher. And as part of my final class, I had to write a two-paragraph mission statement for Messianic Judaism, what I think Messianic Judaism should all be about. Mm -hmm. And then I had to write a few other pages about how are you going to implement this. And of course, one of the ways I said I'm going to implement this is, well, I'm going to talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> so uh, that's something that hopefully we can discuss in the future on Messianic Walk. I'm, I'm definitely going to do it on my show, Messianic Insider. And I'm even going to do it with my parents on a future episode of Outreach Israel Report. So uh, even though we have discussed some Messianic Jewish problems with Hebrew roots, this is not to say that you know Messianic Judaism doesn't have its future challenges as well. We're all human. We're all limited. We're all trying to uh, move from that first generation to hopefully second generation movement. And and there there are going to be some things different about it.
1: Mm -hmm. And I'd like to call out, too, on that note, that while I I think both groups need each other, uh, I I think the Messianic Jewish movement does need people who are zealous for God's word, which a lot of Hebrew roots folks absolutely are. Um, but I also think that the Hebrew Roots world needs, some, needs the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, I think some, some of us have lost a, our, our focus on that core mission of the salvation of all Israel. So I, beyond even those reasons, but for those reasons alone, I think um, the two groups need each other. And like John said, it's not that we're saying like Hebrew Roots is all bad and Messianic Jewish all good. It's not like that. We're just saying that these are some areas that have been stumbling blocks to fellowship even fellowship among groups that share a lot of core beliefs, especially with regards to Yeshua being the Messiah of Israel um, and how these, uh, how we can just handle these better. And I, I would say with all of my answers, I you probably noticed I, I was really harping on the humility and grace when we're in congregational settings. I, I just like to summarize with that, like um, in, in almost all of these cases where fellowship can be broken because of differences, we can, if we have humility and grace um, i think we can we can have that that big tent of believers where we say ah oh, you know we don't agree on all these things but we can worship god together and fellowship together that's a better path path forward than um, all of the the fighting the infighting um, that we've witnessed in the last frankly few decades in my lifetime um, that i've witnessed we can do a lot better than that and it starts with humility for ourselves we can control ourselves let's Let's be the, the the humble people and the gracious guests when we're uh, in congregations.
0: And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes this episode of the Messianic Walk. Uh, and certainly, as we close up the calendar year twenty twenty, we would like to wish you all a blessed twenty twenty one. Yeah, uh, I know that starting this uh, new podcast has been a very rewarding experience for both Judah as well as myself. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, on behalf of myself, uh, John McKee, Messianic Apologetics, www.messianicapologetics.net, and Judah Hamango of the blog KeyNetTLedZion, that's blog.judagabriel.com. Uh, We'll see you again soon with another episode as we address the issues that really matter to today's Messianic people as we are all on this walk together. Amen. Shalom, everyone.